Well, on this Good Friday, I'll be offering seven short reflections on the cross as we hear the story. We'll read through sections of the gospel story and then focus on the words of Jesus himself as he gives of his life to heal the world. Luke 23, beginning in verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The first word that Jesus speaks from the cross is, Father. Forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. Pilate, the soldiers, the crowds, the religious leaders, none of them knew what they were doing on that day in Jerusalem and outside the city walls. Pilate thought he was satisfying a particularly annoying subset of the city that he governed. The soldiers thought it was just another execution, another in a long line of floggings. The religious leaders thought that they were ridding the nation of a dangerous charlatan and a blasphemy. And so, in their mind, Jesus at some point stopped being human and turned into an object. An object to vent all of their deep impulses towards violence, towards contempt, all of their human hatred rising to the surface and forming a buzzing swarm, frenzied and raging. And as Jesus suffers, as all of the deepest sin of man and woman alike is heaped upon him, he can still see through the fury. The den of the mob, through the vitriol of their curses, through it all he can still see individuals, daughters and sons with compassion. Jesus' first word of the cross is a word of reconciliation from God to humanity. It is God who does the reconciling, God who does the atoning, God who moves towards us even as we push him out into the utter darkness. When we sin, when we turn from the way of God, we give ourselves over to the faceless slavery of the mob shouting crucify, crucify, sin makes us into the walking dead, just a face in a delirious and cursing mob. But as we deface our humanity, 
God restores us. The first word of the cross is a word of reconciliation, a witness to the power of suffering love over every power of human sin, over state-sanctioned violence or religious heresy. Father, forgive us, for we don't know what we are doing. Luke 23, beginning in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to the man, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal who mocks Jesus at first glance is the only sane one in this scene. He looks at Jesus and does not see any reason for hope or any echo of majesty. He simply sees a broken man, suffering just as he is, a broken man whose fate is sealed and now suffers in the horrible and painstakingly slow trampling of inevitability. Why would anyone look to this one crucified by the overwhelming power of the state for hope? What power could this one, completely shamed, scorned, and cursed, claim as he is scourged, as he is stripped and exposed? Yes, the first criminal looks at Jesus and sees that nihilism is the true story of the world. Failed messiahs get crosses, graves get closed, and the world cycles ever on with its absurd and twisted physics. But the second criminal looks at Jesus and sees something quite different. He is perhaps the first one to see the face of God revealed through the horror of crucifixion, the face of God in all of its fullness. He is the only person, as Jesus is crucified, to even entertain the idea that what's happening might not be an end at all, but rather a beginning. Through excruciating breaths, he turns towards Jesus, looks at this bloodied, failed Messiah on this Roman cross and says to him, Jesus, remember me. Jesus looks at him through his concussed vision, through his fading eyes and says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Fleming Rutledge writes, the paradox is that of his power precisely in his powerlessness. We need to stop and envision this. He is a prisoner of his own body. The weight of his body is killing him. The only power left to him is the power of his word. Jesus in his power is fully revealed on the cross. The thief who asked Jesus to remember him is the first to trust his life to this power. You could ask, what choice did he have? He was literally at the end of himself. We see from the two thieves that there truly is a choice. Despair or hope. To see the power of the cross in weakness or to join the chorus of contempt. And in our greatest suffering, there is a God who remembers us, a God who speaks to us, and a God that no matter what will come to us and will be God with us. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise.
John 19, beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus was the Messiah, not just in some triumphalistic way removed from the reality of the people that he walked among. Jesus was the Messiah in a certain time, in a certain place, in the first century in the ancient Near East with a mother and with friends. And as he hangs on the cross, Jesus links two of the most important people in his life together. John, his friend, Mary, his mother. This may seem like a small matter, an extraneous detail. This certainly displays how Jesus is still in control even as he's suffering. But it also holds echoes and overtones of the night which preceded this Good Friday. As Jesus, on Maundy Thursday, shared a meal with his disciples, he got up from the meal, he took a towel and tied it around his waist, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. He gave them this commandment, as I have done for you, so do to one another. Now, here is Jesus on the cross, entrusting his mother and one of his dearest friends to one another. Jesus links them in a web of mutual care and compassion. This is a seed of what will be birthed in fire and in frenzy on Pentecost Sunday. Jesus will pour out his spirit upon all people, forming his body, a people who will bear one another's burdens, love and honor one another above themselves. Jesus from his cross is empowering us to love one another, giving us an example, a command, and eventually he will give us his spirit to form us in the way of love. He commands us towards suffering love, mutual care, and in our love for one another, he is lifted up, revealed to the world, and draws all people to himself. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, The knowledge of God in the suffering of the cross of Christ destroy man who abandons his humanity, for destroys his gods and destroys his supposed divinity. It sets him free from his inhuman hubris to restore to him his true nature. It makes the one curved in upon himself once again open to God and his neighbor and gives Narcissus the power to love someone else. Woman, here is your son. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. From now on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The biblical writers, for whatever reason, preserve Jesus' initial cry in the Aramaic. Something about the depths of this anguish seemed untranslatable, perhaps even unintelligible. We cannot behold the cross except as a place of utter desolation and abandonment. Darkness settles over the whole of the land, Father, Spirit, and Son embracing the reality of God-forsakenness as Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is cast out into the bleak darkness. 
Sure, it's possible and quite likely that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, that he is hinting at the victory that will be his because of the faithfulness of God. It's likely that this is a secondary interpretation, something that will be revealed later. Jesus was a prophet, so when he speaks the words of the scriptures, they are like seeds sown into the soil. Their full harvest and bloom will soon be seen. But in this moment, I think we do a vast injustice with any attempt to sentimentalize or to interject the coming victory of Resurrection Sunday into the silence of God. Jesus is forsaken. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with sorrow, and as one from whom others hide their face, he was despised and we held him of no account. Jesus is alone, abandoned. Let us keep silence for just a moment as we wait in the silence and darkness of Good Friday. Jesus, in going to God-forsakenness, has graced every supposedly God-forsaken place with his presence. In a world of injustice, of sinfulness, of abandonment such as our own, this is the only news that could be in any way good. Jesus, in going to his death on the cross, goes to every God-abandoned place, to the slave ship on the Middle Passage, to the death camps of Auschwitz, to the markets where children are traded, bought, and sold, to the place where police officers callously place their necks on those they are called to protect and serve. Theologian James Cone writes, In Jesus' death, black slaves saw themselves, and they unleashed their imagination in describing what they felt and saw. His death was a symbol of their suffering, trials, and tribulations in an unfriendly world. They knew the agony of rejection and the pain of hanging from a tree. Because black slaves knew the significance of the pain and shame of Jesus' death on the cross, they found themselves by his side. Dostoevsky's Ivan asks, Can there ever be a harmony between a world such as our own and the grace of God? Could anything ever account for the absurd evil of our world? Dostoevsky provides no neat answer, but rather an icon of the suffering of God. Jesus, in his cry of abandonment, has gone to the utter darkness, to every God-abandoned place. Jesus was alone in his abject suffering, so that no one throughout all of history will be alone in theirs. No one suffers alone. This is not an excuse for evil or even an explanation. It is the boldest claim of Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, In order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. The Gospels relentlessly resist any spiritualizing away of Jesus. He is very God and yet very man. It is his very physical body which is being subjected to beating, to torture, to piercing. Here Jesus is so elementally human. The one who promised that he could give living water that for whoever would drink of it they would never thirst again is himself in this moment thirsty. And those standing near the cross in John's gospel respond by giving him a drink of sour wine. 
This cup falls far short of satisfying the deep thirst that Jesus is experiencing. It likely, likely only makes it worse. But in Jesus' thirst, the thirst of all humanity for an end to the wrath that our rebellions have chosen, the thirst of all humanity for righteousness is being satisfied. Isaiah 51 verse 22, thus says your sovereign, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, see, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, you shall drink of it no more. Jesus takes the cup of suffering that should be ours to drink. He drinks it to the dregs. He who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our great high priest who in the words of Hebrews 2, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, since therefore the children share flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives held in slavery by the fear of death. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. I am thirsty. John chapter 19, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The question for us, as Jesus says, it is finished, is just what exactly is it? Is Jesus saying that he is finished, that he is done fighting for breath and for life? Perhaps. But the word that Jesus says here in quiet defiance is the word tetelestai, from the Greek word telos. Telos means end or purpose. And when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying that his mission, as he draws his last breath on the cross, he is drawing all people to himself. He is saying that the purpose for which God has sent him to this world is being accomplished. This stunning declaration of victory offered only in John's gospel is proclaimed at the very twilight of Jesus' life. How? How could Jesus, as he's being killed on a cross, proclaim that it is finished when all that seems to be finished in this scene is Jesus? Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been at war with the ruler of this world, the dark power that holds humanity in its grip in the word taking on flesh, in the light shining in the darkness so that the darkness cannot overcome it, in loving those that the Father has given him until the very end, in going to the cross and drinking the cup of God's wrath, Jesus has run his race. Karl Barth says that Jesus makes his throne a cross. The cross is a stunning reversal where Jesus conquers by being conquered, where he blesses by being cursed, where he offers life by losing his own. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
When Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, he is declaring to us that he has shown us the fullness of God, that we now have seen God. We have seen the depth and the width of his love. There is no greater love than the one who would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus no longer calls us servants, no longer calls us slaves. He calls us his friends. The story, as J.R.R. Tolkien tells us, begins and ends in joy. This Good Friday joy is a cryptic one indeed, hidden beneath layers of grief and loss. But through this sorrow, Jesus is bringing all sorrow, all shame to an end. He has broken the powers of sin by exhausting their force, taking them all upon himself. On Friday, Jesus can proclaim with no irony or no apology, it is finished. But only on Sunday will we see the fullness of what he means. It is finished. Luke 23. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole of the land until three in the afternoon, while the sunlights failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' last words from the cross, the last words of his earthly life, one last expression of trust, one last exhalation, a breathing out of self, one last gift given to the world. In the end, Jesus can only put himself in the loving hands of the Father, and I think we do this moment a profound disservice if we just use the fast-forward button and say, Oh, Jesus knows. He can die at peace. He knows it will all be fine. Yes, Jesus has hinted that there will be more to the story, that if the temple of his body is destroyed, he can raise it again in three days. But it's certainly one thing to know something cognitively and quite another to face it experientially. In the midst of his suffering and the uncertainty of death that we all will face, Jesus chooses one last time to trust, one last time to let go of the illusion of control. And it's here that we hear the invitation of Good Friday. Will we follow our Messiah and our Savior in the way of trust? Will we trust that God's way is better than our own? To find that our lives, in order to find that we must lose them, that to carry our cross daily is truly the lightest of all burdens. As we look towards the silence of Holy Saturday, when all of earth and heaven are seemingly holding their breath, we have two options. As Dylan Thomas says, to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Or to, to breathe in deeply and to exhale. Entrusting our lives, our futures, our eternities to the very hands of our loving and careful God. Good Friday is the mystery of mysteries. We do well to behold the story and to immerse ourselves in it. But in the midst of this mystery, there is an invitation. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross sunday is coming but for now we breathe in and we breathe out we wait in trust 
grace and peace to you.